This is Radio Influence. This is the place that the UFC and Bellator come to for the inside scoop of what's going on in the world of mixed martial arts. The doors of the gym are opened up just for you. We are the MMA Insiders. Here are your hosts, Jason Floyd of the MMA Report and the president of Combat Sports Media, Sam Kaplan. You may have seen earlier this week that the World Series of Fighting is becoming the Professional Fighters League. And of course, that uh, spurned a tweet from Sam Kaplan relating it to Bellator and the IFL. And Sam Kaplan is going to join me here on this edition of the MMA Insiders Podcast on Radio Influence. Now, before I bring in Sam, let you know about my sponsor, Fight TV. Fight is the go-to app for MMA fans and practitioners, live pay-per-views, TV tapings, full-length matches, interviews, movies, and documentaries. The Fight app is your wrestling, MMA, and boxing TV. Watch live pay-per-views and free programming on your own schedule. Download Fight free today by going to fight, F-I-T-E dot TV forward slash radio influence forward slash once again, that is fight, F-I-T-E dot TV forward slash radio influence forward slash. That link is also available on radioinfluence.com. And uh, you can see myself call the Battleground MMA fight card coming up on Friday night on fight for 1999. As long as you are not within a 72 mile radius of Tampa as that card is blacked out locally. But Sam, how's it going, man? It's going well. It's uh, kind of interesting to see that the IFL and Bellator had a one night stand and they're going to have a bastard child scheduled for delivery, what, January 2018? January 2018. Uh, you know, all the details are really is that still... Like, is that exactly nine months from now? Uh, let's see here. It's uh, That's pretty much, yeah, nine months from now, yeah. It's... Uh, it's it's interesting to kind of see how this story has gone on. You know, for our newer listeners of you know, for people who are newer fans of MMA, first off, explain what the IFL was. <laughs> I'm really showing my age. I, it's it, I'm now old enough that I have to explain what the IFL is. That's how long ago it was. The IFL was started out as a team based MMA concept. They signed a bunch of MMA legends to be coaches. Those coaches proceeded to go out and they recruited five different fighters in five different weight classes, and they had head-to-head team matchups. And based on the results of those wrestling-style meets, five you know best of five. Uh, standings were generated, and it was done like an actual sport league playoff. It was very unique and revolutionary for its time, but there were some delivery issues along the way. A lot of unknown talent at the time. A lot of those guys would actually go on and become name brand talent like Ben Rothwell and Roy Nelson. But at the time, they did not have a very star-studded deck to begin their promotion that was tied to a public uh, IPO, you know, a public stock offering. And the stock actually opened up bonkers. They did pretty well initially, but then the stock kind of backpedaled, you know, almost down to the pink sheets. And I think there were some lawsuits with regards to some of the losses that were absorbed by some of the investors. And eventually, you know, after some leadership changes at the top, they abandoned the team concept and went more with a UFC light concept. They did that for a few shows, but by then it was uh, it was too late. They were hemorrhaging money. They weren't really doing well at the gate, and they had lost some key TV deals, and it went the way of the dodo. And now we've got the Pro Fighters League. First off, Professional Fighter League, should I say. Couldn't you come up with a better name, though? 
I like it better than World Series of Fighting. Yeah, by, by the way, the uh, you know, so the press release comes out. It was like a middle-of-the-night press release, which to me was, was very odd because I actually woke up to this news. And as someone who wakes up at 5.30 in the morning, if the press release came out before I uh, you know, got up and before – Come on, yeah. Jason. I sent all, all my press releases out at 1 a.m. That's the best time. <laughs> you're, still, you're still up at 1 a.m.? Oh, yeah. I go to the bar and I drink and I write press releases on my, my uh, iPhone and I just tweet them out. You know, first off, it, it, the the part that was interesting to me was, you know, the World Series of Fighting. I think it was pretty well known that they had been, you know, sold earlier this year for an ungodly amount of money. I don't know who thinks they're worth twenty five million dollars, because whoever thinks they're worth twenty five million dollars, I want to have a sit down with them. Well, Jason, it is four twenty day. And, 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 and tell me how the World Series of Fighting is worth twenty five million because. One of the things that has come out over the past couple of days since this announcement came down is the fact of, as of January 1, 2018, they don't have a television deal. Maybe it's one of those international email scams where you get that email that there's you know $50 million waiting for you in a bank account, but you've got to deposit $25 million to get that $50 million. Maybe that's what happened here. Maybe the, uh, new, the new uh, Pro Fighter League uh, owners got swindled here. You know, and I saw a tweet from Front Row Brian earlier this week where I, I thought it was spot on. Why are you offering a million dollars when you probably could offer a hundred thousand dollars and get people interested in taking these fights? Right, and you know, if you have a million dollars to offer, maybe you should use that for other investments. You know, invest it into getting name fighters to commit to your organization and try to retain some of the talent that you just lost. You know, instead of letting Marlene Marais and uh, Dave Branch just walk like that you know they could have funneled that money into signing bonuses and kept those guys for a long time and we don't, really don't still don't know what's going on with justin gaethje I, I, everything i've heard he's a free agent i, I know ray Sefo has kind of tried to come out publicly and say he's not but everything you heard and, and i do expect that justin gaethje will be a, a ufc fighter in the very near future even though i do expect that bellator will make a run but i, I think at the end of the day we're going to see justin gaethje in the UFC, which leads to the question of, okay, so you're developing this new league where you have, you know, allegedly 100 fighters under contract. I would wonder how many of those contracts uh, fighters are going to be able to get out of, maybe because they're not being offered enough fights at this point. But I, I look at it and say, who is the face of the World Series of Fighting right now? They have to rebuild. And that's why, on the surface, I don't think this concept is as bad of an idea as some people make it out to be. There's a lot of changeover in talent going on. A lot of the big-name fighters that they had spent money on developing the last couple of years, they're going by the wayside. And I think that the roster will continue to be purged of their more recognizable names. So they're primarily going to re re reconstitute themselves in 2018 as a essentially a new promotion with a lot of new names and probably a lot of names that most people have never heard of. So how do you market a product with a bunch of fighters that are not name recognizable? And the only way to do that really to me in my mind is to have some kind of gimmick, to have some kind of concept with built-in storylines that are easy to convey to an audience so it's easy to understand. They may not know the names, but they understand the stakes and there's you know, always things going on with the fights that are leading on to bigger things, with, and that's where the playoff format comes in. And I think for Bellator, when I was there, that was a key for us. It, you know, a, a couple of our announcers used to joke that it's names you've never heard of from venues you've you've never never heard of. Um, and you know, the the one thing that really resonated with certain people was that this is this is a, a 
almost like a real true sport format. There's eight fighters going after the same thing and each fight meant something. So there was a concept, you know, you can call it a gimmick if you will, but from our perspective, it was a sport-based concept, a concept that people had been used to for years having followed other sports. So it translated well and it allowed us to create a vehicle, to create a platform, to create new stars, to create name-recognizable talent. And perhaps that is what the IFL is – pardon me, I just called it the IFL – the Pro Fighters League. Perhaps that's what they're trying to do, especially since they're on a sports network. Now they have a format that speaks to the audience that NBC Sports Network has, and it's kind of a good mesh. Short-term, I do think it's, it's not the worst idea in the world. However, long-term – it does when you have these formats similar to what Bellator and the IFL had. Uh, it, can, it can become very confounding once you use it to what use it for its intended purpose, intended purpose, and it delivers. And you create those stars. You can't have these barriers and all these rules that limit you from making matchups that can generate the promotion money. So if they are married to this concept long term, I think it's a bad idea. But if they're trying to recreate some new stars, you know, trying to get back a lot of what they had lost and they're using a, this format for, for a short term, short, short term period, I think it could work. But, you know, when you see concepts like this, typically you know, the promoter's intent is to try to get audience attention when they know they're not going to be using name rec recognizable talent. You look at Shine Fights several years back. You know, they did not have a lot of big names on their roster, so they came up with as many gimmicks as they could, and it actually got them more attention than I felt they were actually deserving of getting. Those one-night tournaments that they used to promote you know, you may not have known who half the guys were in that tournament, but for some reason, for whatever reason, it got people interested. And for people who have not seen kind of the the presentation that is out there right now, Ray Sefo sent a, an email out that uh, was leaked to the media, and they have a three-point plan where point A is every fighter will have regular fights, no less than three scheduled per year. Point two, every fighter will receive a regular paycheck each month, and point three is every fighter will have the opportunity to become a champion. Now, one of the things that really has not been clarified by uh, the ownership group of the Professional Fighters League is, you know, it, it sounds like a season is 10 months long. And when you start kind of putting the math together with the terms of the playoffs, we're talking about potentially five fights in a 10-month period, which to me a, you're one medical suspension away from potentially losing one of your most marketable fighters, whoever that fighter may be, and you know, and then B, it kind of made me think about you and Bellator. Are you going to allow elbows in these fights? I don't think you can. You know, I, I personally like elbows in standard fights, but in a tournament concept. I don't like it. I don't think a fighter should be, you know, eliminated from contention in a fight that he won. You know, he advances to the next round, but can't continue because he suffered superficial damage during the course of the fight. I don't think elbows do tremendous physical damage. I, I you know, at least internal physical pain. I don't think elbows cause that, you know, that much pain. I think the cut and the sight of blood is is more of the damage, and because. 
I've, I've been around fighters that, you know, threw elbows just to try to cut someone open so the fight could get stopped. So I don't like the idea of elbows being utilized in a tournament format, especially when the turnaround time is as close as it's likely to be for the PFL. But, you know, I don't know what direction they're going to go in. Here, here's one of the suggestions I have for the ownership group of the PFL. And, and this is, you know, it's no, it's, it's not real. I'm not, I'm not trying to be negative about Ray Cepho, but, uh, you know, I think when you look at the World Series of Fighting over the past couple of years, one of the things, and whether people like Ali Abdelaziz or hate Ali Abdelaziz, when he was a part of the World Series of Fighting, he was all he had this ability to make sure that the World Series of Fighting was always in the narrative, in the media. You always heard what was going on in the World Series of Fighting, and, and let's be honest, since Ali left that promotion. You really don't hear much. When, when's the last time you actually saw an article about a World Series of Fighting fighter and, and not an article where it's Marlon Race is going to the UFC or, or David Branch is going to the UFC? I think that the PFL needs to bring in somebody that has a name in this industry and is media savvy to keep the PFL in the narrative in the MMA media. Yeah, I, Jason, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I don't want to advocate for anyone to lose their job. I'm not saying that should be the case with Ray Cepho, but you have a situation where you're trying to distance yourself from a brand name. They are changing from the World Series of Fighting to the PFL, and there's good reason for that because the World Series of Fighting, quite frankly, is a tainted brand. You mentioned a lot of what the, of some of the good things that Ali Abdelaziz did, but there was also a lot of negative attention that he's brought to that promotion. A lot of dust-ups that he had with fighters. A lot of fighters and managers lost trust in them in an organization, and Ray Cepho was there every step of the way. To me, there needs to be some rebuilding that goes on, some repairing of relationships, and it wouldn't be a bad idea not only to get a new public face for the organization, but perhaps some new blood on the internal back end side with regards to what's communicated to the fighters and how dealings are done with management and the fighters. I don't know if having Ray front and center right now makes a lot of sense. You know, and Ray's a guy that he's playing dual roles. He He's a executive with a promotion, but look, he, he's also a trainer there at Extreme Couture. I think the other side of this is and when you look at the current World Series of Fighting roster, I mean, they, they need to add talent to this roster. My question is, who is a guy that is going to be going out to the American top teams of the world, going to uh, the AKAs of the world, and Jackson Winks of the world, and finding that new talent and signing that new talent? I, I think that's, I, when we talk about the unknowns of this PFL, to me, that's one of the biggest unknowns is, is how are they going to go out and acquire new talent? I mean, one of the issues that you have heard about the World Series of Fighting and this has been going on for some time is as a, a fighter and or a manager, why would you want to sign an exclusive deal with the world series of fighting? This is a, an organization that has not shown to be putting on regular events. Um, you know, they're, they're talking about the, the, the events they're going to do later on this year, but you're talking about as of so far in this year, this, this is an organization that hasn't been putting on a ton of shows. So how do you convince a manager and fighter of why you should come sign with the World Series of Fighting now. And obviously putting a, a big price tag of a million dollars out there is going to get some people interested. But I, I just, I, I do wonder how you do convince, you know, especially someone who maybe has a name that maybe a, a UFC or Bellator is interested in, how you get them to come you know, sign with the PFL when they know that to get that kind of money, you know, you're going to have to essentially fight every 60 days. And if Ray is the guy that is scouting and doing fighter visits and fighter recruitment, it creates an interesting paradox. I'm sure that 
older coaches, guys from the older generation of MMA and and MMA, you know, and martial arts, you know, they're going to be receptive to having Ray come into their gym because they probably consider him an old friend. But for some of the newer camps, some of the newer gyms out there that may not be from, as familiar with Ray, it, it's kind of an interesting paradox in that it'll create potentially an awkward moment because what if Ray is training a guy from his gym to fight someone from the gym that he's going to visit? You know, our coach is going to be receptive to having Ray come into their gym and be able to observe everything that's taking place and all the fighters training and how they're getting prepared. As a newer gym owner, if I wasn't as familiar with Ray as a person and his reputation as a martial artist, I might give pause to having him come in. And I think the, the, the I guess one of the biggest questions is if you're going to pay fighters out this you know $10 million prize pool, how do you make money? You don't. It's it's that th- that business model is not financially sustainable. You look at the math; it's not possible. It's absolutely not possible because we know what their current broadcast deal is with NBC, and we know that they've had trouble selling tickets. So, thus far into its current incarnation as a fight promotion, the primary revenue stream for the World Series of Fighting has been investor dollars it's been you know investment investment uh capital that's come in that's been the main financial driver for the organization and it looks like the new ownership if they paid 25 million for world series of fighting it would one would have to assume that they have deep pockets i sure hope so because you know investor capital will continue to be the primary revenue stream for the pro fighters league and it looks like they're essentially going to be a D.C. Virginia regional promotion when you look at the fact of all this ownership group, the power players are all there in the Virginia, D.C. area. I was having this conversation with somebody earlier this week, and they said when you think of the MMA landscape, where is the World Series of Fighting currently? I, you know, I think for a long time people said they were the number three organization, but I don't know if you can really say that right now. I don't think you can right now. That can change in a hurry if this new ownership group you know, has the right kind of connections. They have a network of contacts that are well connected within, you know, different entertainment industries. And there's resources out there that they can utilize, then perhaps they can make up some ground really quick. But if they don't have those types of connections or they can't get their network of contacts to buy into this concept, then there's not going to be a lot of growth potential there. By the way, what lawyer is going to look at this league and maybe try to challenge them on their contracts, maybe try to get a CBA because, A, they're calling themselves a league. How are they going to separate these? Are they, are they employees slash independent contractors? I'm waiting for what lawyer is going to come out and say that uh, you know they're going to go after this league in terms of you know employment services. That won't happen until the fighters start making some money. Once people start making some money, then it might raise the ire of certain individuals. But right now, if they're offering million-dollar tournaments and there's a lot of fighters out there, you know, unemployed or underemployed, you're going to find a fair share of people getting behind this concept. Million dollars is a lot of money at the end of the day, Jason. No, it's definitely a lot of money. I also think about if you're a current World Series of Fighting fighter, the way that your contract is currently states, you know, and they start this new league, is there going to be maybe some managers out there that'll say, hey, we need a new contract because, you know, the the terms of the old deal don't match what you're trying to do with with this new uh, rebranding? 
Not everything that the World Series of Fighting has done in the past has been well thought out and well planned. You hope that with the new ownership that that has changed. But there are some question marks with some of these announcements that have been made, whether or not everything has been fully plotted out and everything's buttoned up. I'm not so sure. I don't have the confidence that it is. Since you, you know, had to deal with, you know, booking, matchmaking, the Bellator tournaments over the years you were with Bellator, what's the biggest challenge Ray Sefo is going to face with trying to book these fights in, in such a, a frequent, you know, a quick amount of time when you're talking about, you know, 60 days? Having injury replacements. Because even if guys do not come out of the fight injured and they're set to go into the next round and, and be announced and promoted for that round, they still have to go through another camp. That, that was the thing with, with Bellator fighters. They, you know, If you were advancing the tournament, your camp didn't stop. You would spend maybe three months preparing for the first round, and had you won, you don't stop your camp. You go back right back to the gym, and now it's a four-month camp. You win again, you go, to the, you go to the finals, now it's a five-month camp. And then if you won the finals, unless you're – title fight was scheduled more than six months out you're pretty much only taking a couple weeks out and if you're fighting that your title fight within four to six months you're 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 right back into another camp so it's almost like taking on a 10 to 12 month training camp and guys even if they're not getting injured in the actual fights the winners of the rounds the the, the guys that are continually successful they start to break down their bodies start to break down during their fight camps during their weight cuts and you better have guys ready to step in in a moment's notice. We were very lucky. There were a lot of Bellator fighters that, because there was so much money at stake, they fought hurt. And they would hide their injuries, and we wouldn't learn about the injuries until after the fact. A lot of guys, they would win the tournament, and then we'd want to schedule their title fight within three to four months following the finals. And they'd say, look, I've got a broken foot, or I've got a torn rotator cuff. You know, I won the tournament, now I need time to heal. So you bet. So Ray Sefo better have a network of guys that are ready to step in at a moment's notice. Here's the other aspect that maybe they have not thought of yet. You know, the ABC meeting in July. One of the big talking points is going to be about Andy Foster's weight cutting plan. And you know, in terms of, and who knows whatever's going to end up happening with that, but. You know, the the extreme weight cutters. This may not be an ideal league for them. Depends on how much time there is between fights. For Bellator, with the old tournament concept that we had, where you had guys fighting once every month for three consecutive months, with the raised awareness towards extreme weight cut cutting that now exists, I don't think we could have executed this tournament concept. Because, you know, a guy loses weight, makes weight, and, you know, fights at a certain weight, he, as soon as the cut is over and he begins to rehydrate, he, he balloons up. It's not like, okay, he's in great shape. He just had a three-month camp, and, you know, he'll be able to the, – the, the next cut will be easy because he made this cut a month ago. No, for certain guys, it was even harder because, you know, you, you don't stay at that weight. You just go almost balloon back up to the, the original weight that you were before you started your camp, and you've got to restart it over again. And we were seeing guys – just you know, having major problems and very noticeable at certain points towards the end of the tournament concept, and you know we we started to look at ways to you know address that. You know we were talking about maybe you know 
doing the tournaments, but with more time in between the rounds. We actually started doing the four-man tournaments as a way to make it easier for 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 guys and and their bodies because it was just going to be too difficult for them to do three fights in, in three months. So we tried to figure out, you know, can we do two fights in six weeks, or two fights in eight weeks, or two fights, you know, in twelve weeks. You know, let's look at that. So I don't think we could have done the original original concept where it was, you know, eight fighters, three rounds in three months. Um, I don't think we could do that now. It's just because the, the cutting is, you know, you make that first cut and you can get through the first cut for the first round. But you go to the second round, you're killing yourself again. And it's even tougher. Yeah, I also wonder how much of these fights could be a, a little bit of commission shopping. You know, there, there's some commissions that uh, can be a little tougher on medical suspensions than other ones. Well, you mentioned, you know, f- they could fight up to five times over the course of the year. If it's spread out, if there's two months in between each fight, that's doable for a young fighter. For the older guys, you know, by the time they get to that fourth fight, they could start to break down. And that's what happened with the IFL. They would do their regular season during the, you know, the the starting in January or February. But by the time November and December rolled around for the playoffs, a lot of the top fighters that had gotten their teams into the postseason, physically, the older guys, they weren't they were done. They were shot. They 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 could not compete into the into the postseason and the guys that got the teams there were quite often not the team not the guys that were you know trying to compete in the playoffs it was similar to the, the what the nfl has become you know guys that you know no one really plays a 16 game schedule a lot of guys you know they're there for 13 to 14 games the guys that do grind it out for 16 games you they're all there's always the concern that they're not going to have much uh, gas left in the tank for the playoffs I think one of those fighters that you think to that's currently in the World Series of Fighting, an older guy, is could John Fitch hold up for five fights in ten months? Absolutely not. You know, I mean, I mean, if you think about, I mean, John Fitch and Jake Shields may be two of the most notable fighters currently in the World Series of Fighting. I, I think you would, uh, I, I think you'd have to mention Blagoy Ivanov as another noble fighter currently under roster. But yeah, there, I mean, and, and you know, I, someone was talking about the, the most noble World Series of Fighting fighters, and, and they mentioned Andre Harrison. I'm like, well, in terms of the hardcore fans, people know who Andre Harrison is, but it's only the hardcore fans who absolutely know who he is. I would be surprised if guys like Fitch and Jake Shields are around the pro the PFL come 2018. I, I just think you're going to see a lot of salary purging. I think that's why they're going with this concept because they know they're going to go, you know, the, and I'm not saying the fighters won't be talented. They could be very talented fighters, but I think they're going to be a lot of names that people aren't familiar with. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you went through that with Bellator where you're, you know, they're going to have to yeah. sell storylines essentially yep. and, and get uh, people invested in it, you know, and, and whether they can do that or not. I mean, it's by the way, you know, some of these, these, uh, you know, Acronyms we have out there, PFL. Uh, I guess the uh, the Professional Fire Association, the PFA, really isn't out there. I mean, can we can we get a little separation here between the, these uh, three letter names? I think MMA has the worst acronyms in all of sports. We did we did get asked about uh, you know uh, one of the questions we got here was uh, oh, about yeah, the bad purpose. acronyms. There there you there we go. Here we go. I know it's coming. <laughs> w A M M A, and asking what you did for them. So I initially started out as basically head of their ratings committee. I assembled a group of journalists and writers within the field of MMA. And, you know, I came up with a system 
and we, you know, had we, you know, submitted votes every month, and that's how we formulated a universal top ten for the sport of MMA. And if you're not familiar what WAMA is, was it, it was the World Alliance of Mixed Martial Arts, and it was a sanctioning body. It was one of the original sanctioning bodies in MMA, one of the only sanctioning bodies in an MMA. It had some very big financial heavy hitters behind it. The goal of the organization was to create a general governing sanctioning body over the sport of MMA, allowing a mechanism for fighters from other organizations to compete against other fighters from an organi- from other organizations and having universal titles. The the feeling was that, you know, it, that a lot of the MMA titles out there were club titles and there was a desire to have fighters from one organization be able to fight a fighter for another organization for a true world title. Now the concept never really took hold. There was a lot of resistance to it, but there was definitely some, you know, smart people with deep pockets that were behind the concept and where I fit in initially was to create, you know, an independent ratings board to generate ratings that were not generated by the actual promotions. And You know, I I really believed in that concept. I really felt that, you know, there was not a true uh, accurate gauge out there for fighters to be ranked, that too much focus was placed on fighters that were competing in the UFC and that fighters that were not in the UFC that were doing well and achieving, you know, tremendous levels of success were being overlooked. So from that perspective, I definitely agreed with it. And I also agreed with having a mechanism in place that would allow for fighters from one organization to fight fighters from another organization. And I still, you know, fundamentally believed, believe in that. I don't think that from a feasibility and business standpoint, it's ever going to be realistic, but you know, from a pure idol, idealistic sports perspective, I would love to see that happen. But eventually, the World Alliance of Mixed Martial Arts went by the wayside. I eventually was given the title, I think, president of the organization. Mike uh, Lynch, who brought me into the organization, decided that it was time for him to leave. I think there was some philosophical differences between him and some of the, the founding board members. I ended up leaving because initially they stopped. Uh, they were behind on pay for me. Um, and once they, uh, once I got squared away with them and I was made whole again, I started hearing from certain vendors and certain people in the industry that I was close with that they were not getting paid. Um, and once that happened, uh, you know, I, I felt like the best thing for me at that point, I couldn't stand behind an organization that wasn't living up to its financial commit commitments. And I eventually resigned. WAMAC kind of continued a little bit longer, but once myself and Pat Militich, once we both resigned, you know, and maybe it sounds like I'm glad handing myself, but I think with Pat and I leaving, a lot of credibility that it had, you know, going for itself, or some people would say what little credibility it had going for itself, kind of went by the wayside, and WABA did not last much longer after that. And the final thing I just want to mention on the PFL is, I mean, I hope it succeeds, but I just I can't see it happening. I don't think there's enough of a market share right now for a third promotion at this stage to come in and claim. I I just outside of the big, big names in MMA right now, I don't see people getting excited about the sport. I see people getting excited for certain fights and certain fighters, but this is not 2005 
where you have a large critical mass of people that just are in love with the sport of MMA and are willing to consume just about anything that has MMA associated with its title. Well, I mean, just look at, at the UFC card on, on Saturday in Nashville. I mean, it's 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 a DVR card for me, um, quite frankly. I mean, to me, the, the best fight of the weekend is on Friday night uh, with Daniel Strauss and, and Patricio Pitbull with, with their fourth fight. I think there's no question um, that's the best fight of the weekend. I mean, and, and I actually wanted to ask you something about that fight. I'm not asking you to give, give a fight prediction, but when, when you hear the name Daniel Strauss and Patricio Pitbull, what immediately comes to mind? They've fought each other a lot, and they're probably sick of fighting each other. They have, and uh, you know, we got you know one of the questions that we got asked in relation to that, saying that do we think that uh, we're going to see more fighters fight four times in the near future? Um, we may see Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz fight at least four times. I think that's a little bit different. That's kind of a blood feud that generated a great deal of interest and a lot of money. So it makes sense from that perspective to try to milk as much money from your audience as you can. I think in a lot of situations with Bellator, at least right now, and that could change. I mean, they're always signing guys and they have now have a lot of prospects on their roster. But a lot of these rematches that we see are due to none other, none other than the fact that there's just a lack of overall depth in many of their divisions. You know, a lot of these rematches are being made not because there's a clamoring from the public to, to see these guys fight again, but just because by default there's no one else for them to fight. So you're saying you weren't clamoring for Rafael Carvalho versus Melvin Manhoff too? I was not. I was not. But – you look at Mike Chandler. You know he. How many times is he going to end up fighting Ben Henderson? Man, that's um, that's, that's one. You know, I mean, look, Bellator's done some great job of, of adding you know talent to one seventy and one fifty five. I mean, even added Michael McDonald to one thirty five. That, that's that's a great addition for them. But yes. you, you do look at some of their divisions. Um, you know, and, and, you know, look, and, and no disrespect to Brent Primus, um, you know, I, I think Brent's, you know, a great 155 pounder, but I mean, he, he's kind of in that position by default just cause there's really, uh, no other options there, you know, for him. And, uh, by the way, are, are you at all excited about Bellator's pay-per-view? I am. Absolutely. Really? I, are? I, yes. Oh, I, are you, are you not excited for it? Those are some pretty intriguing fights. I don't. First off, I think by the time June twenty fourth gets here, the fight card's not headlined by Vanderlei Silva, Michelle Sonnen. Perhaps you're right, but there's a lot of depth on that show. I mean, you you Ryan Bader versus King Mo, you've got Fedor versus Mitrione. I mean, they loaded the deck. I mean, this card has been designed to withstand a major injury to it. If but, if, uh, if, a, if a fight if a major fight drops, I still think it's a strong show. I, I think that the issue that they have is, and, and I mean, I mean, for instance, the Fedor Mitrione fight is. You know, this was a fight they were going to give the fans on, on Spike, and now you're telling fans you, you got to pay fifty bucks uh, to watch it. Well, I mean, will I be watching? Yes, I'll be watching. Um, I just don't know. It, it's going to be interesting because I think that one of the things Bellator has to market is a is why fans should pass on the June third UFC pay per view, and you know, because there, you know, look, there's some fans who can only afford one pay per view a month. You know, so I think that's one way they have to market it. Um, 
And one of the things that I think Bellator really needs to do a better job of this, I think they need to market the sports bars and get sports bars to to constantly show the Bellator product. I, I think sometimes Bellator um, relies too much on MMA media sites. You know, those are the fans you know you're going to get regardless. So you got to get those those casual sports fans out there. I mean, you know, look, Shell's going to promote that fight great. I mean, we've already seen him talk to a shoe. I don't know what else he can do, but I also one one of my questions with that fight, and this is more about for the New York State Athletic Commission, which um, you know there's obviously a, a lot of issues out there with oh, that yeah. commission. Is how do you tell me you have to sit there and how do you not publicly come out and say Vanderlei Silva has to has to pass a, a pre-fight drug test before we approve we approve his license? I don't even want to get into the New York Commission. I don't, Jason. Don't even get me started. It's just I, I will tell you, Sam. I'm going to be up in Mohegan in July, and uh, you know, going to be doing a bunch of uh, especially programming up there. And uh, one of the things I'm going to do is an executive director's roundtable, and uh, that that might be very interesting. You know, there, there there's it's really. <laughs> The whole regulatory side—it's just kind of very interesting what's going on. Which you know, question we got here, and I think it's starting it's, to become a joke. You know, a lot of these states, the way they're running their commissions, they're a total joke. Well, and and the question we got was, does all the different rules between states hamper MMA and make it more confusing for the fans? And I think it has become confusing. I mean, look, we're recording this on on a Thursday evening. I'm calling a card on on Friday night. You know, I, I go up to the executive director of the Florida uh, Boxing Commission, Paul Waters. And, you know, I say, hey, are the new unified rules uh, in effect for, you know, tomorrow night? He says, well, the new unified rules don't go in effect here in the state of Florida till, till the end of May. And, and that's one of the things that I think that the ABC has to understand and over what's happened over the past, you know, nine or ten months or so is that we can't be – you can't put this sport in a situation where it's changing rules every year because I think even in Nevada the new rules aren't even in yet. I, th- I think they don't go in effect till. Uh, July 1st. So it, it's, you know, I like the new rules. I mean, obviously the, the Chris Weidman thing kind of blew it up and no one should be shocked that New Jersey took that moment to, uh, to give their side of that story. But I'll say this, at least New Jersey <laughs> who is against it is willing to, to voice their opinion. There's a lot of States who are against it that either a didn't show up to the ABC meeting or B just won't say anything. They'll, they'll just, you know, they don't want to go along with it. That that's certainly true, and I do want to turn it back to Bellator and pay per view because Jason, I do want to say and make this point. I'm excited that Bellator is getting back into the pay per view field. I think it's great for the sport, and I think ultimately it will be great for the fighters because Bellator has made a lot of big name recognition, uh, big uh, name recognition signings the last year, year and a half. You know, the Rory McDonalds, the Matt Mitriones, the Ben Hendersons, the Ryan Baders, bringing those guys in, but even though there's not an official salary cap in MMA, there is a budget in Bellator. There's only so many of those names that they can bring on. They can't do a five-fight mega show with all their big-name free agents fighting on the same card. They've got to you know, pick and choose how they assign their budgets. You have a big main event, maybe a couple you know, co-main event fights, but then for your other fights – you have to go with younger talent that isn't making as much money. So there essentially becomes an unofficial cap of how many Rory McDonald's and Ryan Bader's that you can sign because you just don't have the fight slots to accommodate all of them. 
because it's television. It's it's television. It's driven by ratings. It's not necessarily driven by buys and revenue. But now that you're entering pay-per-view, you're re-entering pay-per-view, you're potentially creating another revenue stream, another platform that will allow you to sign additional big-name free agents and go beyond the current amount of top name guys that you have on your roster because eventually if they don't do pay-per-view they're going to get capped out they're going to find themselves at a point where they can't sign a Gegard Musasi. they can't go after him because the budget and the business model will not accommodate another big salary but if they can establish themselves in pay-per-view and I don't mean they have to do it UFC style and do 12 to 16 pay-per-views a year if they can just get to a point where they can even maybe just do two maybe one in May and June or and then another one at the end of the year you know if they can establish themselves you know as as a player and just doing two pay-per-views a year that still opens up more fight slots for them one of the things, and I've talked about this recently, you know, and look, they deserve praise for, you know, bringing in, you know, fighters that you mentioned, the Ryan Bayer, so the Royal of the McDonald's and Vincent Henderson. But, you know, they also have to bring in that up-and-coming talent. And I think one of the best signings that they've had recently is the guy who's going to debut uh, in Bellator on Friday night, and that's Dominic Mazzotta. And they're putting him up against A.J. McKee. Uh, anyone who knows that, that Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, MMA scene, Dominic Mazzotta is someone uh, that everyone is familiar with, fights at 135, fights at 145. He uh, has been a dual champion there uh, in Pinnacle FC up there in Pennsylvania. So that's really a, a great matchup. I, I think Bellator is doing a, a lot of great things. People keep talking about the momentum, you know, what, what does Bellator need to do? And, and I think at the end of the day, they just need to continue to do what they're doing. But I think one of the things that they have to figure out is you know they have shown the ability to get the fan base excited for their major temple events you you think about the shell tito fight earlier in the year and and the rampage mo fight but how do you get the fan base interested for those non-tentpole events you know how do you get the fan base interested in uh, a a car that's headlined by chi and jikwani and melvin glora i think that's the next step for bellator is getting that fan base but i mean look there's plenty of ufc cards that you sit back and you say i'm not really excited to watch that fight card the key will be for bellator to continue to sign prospects because for a long time i did not feel they had a lot of good young talent enough good young talent on their roster but now you look at it you know they've got guys like james gallagher like dylan dennis you've got tyrell fortune ed ruth they've got some names now in the tool shed and they've got to continue to build on that and once they get a critical mass of good young prospects suddenly those b shows will become loaded shows where everyone on there is a guy and a name that you have to know and recognize i don't think they'll ever be anywhere near the ratings uh draw that the the temple events are but there could be ratings growth in those smaller shows that they do if they can continue to develop the young talent now one of the other things that we wanted to talk about here on, on this edition of the ma insiders podcast was uh the fight fixing allegation um people may have seen these stories on every mma website and related to a matchup that took place back at ufc fight night 79 of Hung bong and Leo Clinton, I remember it was the night before this fight where the betting line had just moved tremendously. And I remember all the MMA gamblers were talking about this. And, of course, uh, the story comes out this week of in terms of, of a story out there. When, when you saw, what was your initial reaction? The news made me really rethink a stance that I have expressed previously on this show and that I really had a lot of doubt that a fight fix could be executed in MMA. And based on 
the, the reporting that I've read thus far in this situation and then going back into some other situations, remembering certain situations, I, I, guess I, I, I was wrong. I was wrong, I guess, maybe naive to think that a fight fix couldn't take place in MMA. The allegations thus far have not been proved, but just reading the reports and looking at some of the circumstantial evidence, it, it, you know, it doesn't it looks like that at least an attempt was made. Yeah, and uh, you know, there's there's a you, people can see the story that's on MMAJunkie.com where uh, the UFC had warned both fighters about it and, and Bong being investigated there uh, in, in South Korea. And I gotta imagine that uh, you know probably during in Nashville this week in terms of the fighter meetings, I'm sure that UFC executives this is probably something that's being brought up. And kudos to the UFC for monitoring the situation and going in and issuing warnings to both fighters because it looks like the warning that was issued to the fighters it looks like you know that that, that it looked like a change of heart took place last second and that you know the fighter didn't go through with the fix and fought to his best and actually ended up walking away with a split decision victory and it looks like now that fighter's in trouble because of that. It looks like that's why this police investigation in South Korea was launched was because the fighter himself went to the authorities out of fear that, you know, there are going to be repercussions taking, to, you know, taken out against him because it looks like he was in pretty deep with the wrong kind of crowd in South Korea that he, you know, was approached by organized crime. And, you know, again, these are all allegations. But if you read the report, you know, it looks like you know organized crime was the 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 impetus behind the attempt to fix this fight, and it's interesting, Jason, because you know I started to think back, you know, about fights in MMA that potentially had been fixed, and there there, there are rumors that some of the UFC fights in the mid '90s perhaps were fixed. You know, Pancrase in Japan, a lot of those outcomes were manipulated that you know i've talked to people that said that the fights were real the actual fighting wasn't choreographed but you know fighters were told beforehand who was supposed to walk out the winner and who was supposed to walk out the loser and they were compensated as, as such there many years ago and when i say many years ago i think maybe the mid 2000s maybe somewhere around there there was a major japanese promotion and there's been a kind of urban legend within the industry of mma that there was a fighter who competed in this uh, organization that was, you know, in Japan that was once very prominent, and this fighter would later go on to compete in the UFC, that this fighter was paid to lose, and that the promotion itself was the motivating factor to try to initiate the the, the uh, predetermined outcome, because there was a fighter that they were trying to build in the Japanese market, and they were trying to make him into a major star. And coincidentally, that fighter would eventually go on to fight in the UFC. And I can't, I apologize for not being able to name names. It's just for legal reasons, I can't do it. But for those that have been following the sport for a long time, they know exactly the example that I'm talking about here. They know exactly the, the, the circumstance. And you know, it was interesting because at the time, it was another reporter that called it to my attention, that started that making me aware that th that there was, you know, a rumor out there that this fight had been thrown by the fighter. And, you know, the 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 um, the writer, you know, sent me remember, it was, I guess it was old. It was old enough that, you know, we were using instant messenger at the time. And he sent me an instant <laughs> message, sent me the link of the actual sequence where, you know, he believed it was a fixed fight. 
And actually, then he called me and kind of, you know, walked me through it, narrated it, and like pointed everything out. And when after that narration, I said, "Wow, I think you're onto something." And the legend kind of grew because it wasn't just this one reporter with his theory. Other people that I ran into over the years would say, "Hey, you knew that fight was fixed, right?" But and by I'd the say, way, Sam, go, some, go of our, some of our younger listeners, they're, they're, you say messenger. They're probably thinking Facebook Messenger. No, we're talking about AOL Instant Messenger. Yeah, AOL we Instant we might Messenger. be outdating ourselves here, some of our listeners. And, you know, there was another instance where it wasn't necessarily a fight fix. There's a difference between a fighter fight being fixed and a fighter throwing a fight. A fighter throws a fight. That's a decision on their own part to not compete at 100%, not to give it their all. A fight fix is when the outcome is predetermined from an outside influence. There was another example that I can think of, and it was a at one time a nationally televised organization that wasn't Bellator that was not and was not the UFC. They essentially did a co-promotion in England, and they had brought in a major name uh, from the past. This guy was and is a Hall of Famer, and basically, from what I was told, this Hall of Famer got sick, did not want to fight, but the promotion and the promoter threatened him. They said, you know, you're sick. You can still fight. We have a lot, you know, riding on this fight. We've, you know, signed you with a lot of promises uh, that, that were made. But if you don't go through with this fight, a lot of what we promise, it's not going to happen and your career is going to suffer because of it. So this fighter went in. He was not feeling it, didn't want to be in the cage and wanted to get paid. And, you know, there was a questionable punch that was thrown. And as soon as that punch near the proximity of his face, this fighter went down and did not get up. And the, the the word always was that that fighter threw the fight. And that's another example that, you know, if you followed the sport long enough and you're an insider, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. But for legal reasons, I can't say anything. And then there's another instance where it necessarily wasn't a fight fix per se, but there was another national organization that had a matchmaker, a matchmaker that hadn't worked for Bellator, the UFC, and the rumor was that this matchmaker bet on the fights that he matchmade, which to me is potentially, you know, a crime. You know, when I when I started uh, matchmaking, a lot of people always said, "Oh, do you bet on your own fights?" And I look at them like, "Are you crazy?" Absolutely not. And it was kind of surprising to me because when I started matchmaking for Bellator, no one took me aside and said I couldn't bet on the fights that I made. But it was just common sense to me that from a legal standpoint and an ethical standpoint, you don't ever bet on a fight that you make. Because if you think about it, a matchmaker has a lot of control. You could take a fighter that you knew the public was going to put more money on and based on your inside knowledge, match him up with an up and comer, someone that you knew, you know, you you had the jump on because, you know, by definition, you're supposed to be able to project talent and be ahead of the curve when it comes to the public's recognition of top name talent, you know, you could make those fights. You could, you easily could set up a fight where the line was swayed one way, but you had confidence that the underdog was really the true favorite and make that fight and then go out and bet on the underdog. You know, you, as a matchmaker, you potentially have that ability. And that was the rumor that that was what this matchmaker had done in the past. And I was, you know, I heard this rumor from multiple sources. Again, I can't name the name for legal reasons, but, you know, some people are going to know exactly who I'm talking about. And uh, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. And it's kind of surprising that 
this stuff has gone on. And I, I guess in hindsight, I never should have said that, you know, I, I think it'd be tough to pull off because apparently now thinking back and looking at some of these examples and the rumors, it's 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 there's a great potential to corrupt the system in MMA. Want to hit on a couple more things before we get out of here on the on this episode? Uh, came out uh, just past couple of days. Tim Kennedy uh, reenlisted, and, and I think uh, you know the MMAAA has been uh, radio silent. I, I guess I would, <laughs> I've had people privately go, "Hey, have you, you talked to Bjorn?" I go, "No, nah, he's gone radio silent." I've tried to to get, in, and, and I'll say the funny thing about Bjorn is when I initially read about the PFL. I was like, hmm, because, you know, there was some rumors about Bjorn and Russia and some big prize tournament, something that came up, but uh, it, it really makes you wonder, is, is the MMAAA already basically uh, gone? Here's the question I have. You know, the, the there was a sentiment that was expressed when this initially was launched that, you know, once Tim Kennedy retired or and once his fight camps were done, that he was going to put a lot of attention behind this. He was going to get to the forefront and really push this initiative. How is he going to do that now if he's reenlisted? You know, what, what is he going to do? If, you know, if he's back in a combat situation, what's he going to do? Start taking calls from Bjorn Rebney in the middle of combat? I'm sure Bjorn's going to want those calls to be answered. But what's Tim, Tim going to do? Get, get, you know, get on his communication uh, device and tell the guys, hey, I've got a call here on my cell phone. I'm going to need to check out of you know, combat here for a little bit. I'm going to have to go down the ravine and get some better cell reception. But as soon as I'm done talking to Bjorn, I'm going to be right back in the action with you guys. I mean, how's that going to work? How is he going to have the time? To dedicate the, to this, and you know, I guess, I guess, I, I guess, I know the answer. It's probably going nowhere, and he's got you know better things to do. It, it's just uh, you know the, the, these unions and fighters associations. A lot of work has been put behind to try to get them off the ground, but they've gone almost absolutely nowhere. They really have yeah. not gotten far. And I've got to think that if you're the UFC and you're the new UFC ownership, you're not worried about any of this stuff anymore. Next time someone gets up and says, oh, we're starting a union, we're going after the UFC, they're just going to laugh if they if they haven't been laughing already. Before we get out of here, I want to talk about one more fight fix situation to end the show. So I'm going to I'll let you take it away, but I want to definitely close on that story for everybody. Uh, you know, I'll just uh, I'll just kind of quickly go through uh, some of the questions that I got uh, was asked about who I think the favorite to win this season of the ultimate fighter is who is a dark horse. Uh, look, I watched episode one. It's the same old ultimate fighter um, in, in terms of who I would say is a favorite. I'd probably put James Krause as a favorite. Also uh, was asked uh, basically along the lines of who we thought were going to be the first round picks of uh, the Bucks. And, and of course, uh, you're an Eagles fan and. uh you know, I, I will say this, you know, you know, one of our commenters mentioned about Joe Mixon. Uh, I will say very interesting is, you know, with everyone knows about the legal issues of, of Joe Mixon. I did an interview with Tyrell Fortune last week, and when I Googled his opponent, the fourth story on Google was about his legal issues. I asked Bellator about it. My understanding is they were aware of his legal issues, but I was kind of surprised that Bellator was uh, bringing this this fighter into their promotion, but uh, I guess I'll just say it: he's pretty much coming in to lose. He's fighting Tyrell Fortune. They they want <laughs> they want to have Fortune win that fight. Yeah, yeah mean, they're, try, they're trying to build. They're trying to build him. For me, for the from the Eagles' perspective, I would love to see them take Christian McCaffrey at number fourteen. I don't think that's going to happen. I have a feeling that they're going to go cornerback, and I think they're going to take Gary and Conley. I, I just have a feeling that's going to end up being their pick. Makes you wonder if Mike Williams is their pick if he's on the board. 
I don't think Mike Williams is going to be on the board. Yeah, I know. A lot of people are talking about running backs. This is a pretty deep running back class. Uh, I think the top three running backs will all be gone by the 15th pick. I don't know, because I think with Dalvin Cook, there are some off-the-field concerns. I think from a talent perspective, he definitely is a top 15 pick, but I think that some teams are going to be a little scared off. I think character is going to be a big issue in this year's draft, and I think you're going to see certain guys drop, and I think uh, Joe Mixon is going to drop further than anyone realizes. There's some new rumors of allegations, yeah, that, that. Uh, some stuff that took place in high school. I think he's going to drop, and I think Dalvin Cook's going to drop. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, look, in terms of, you know, to me, I and I'm as much a FSU homer as I come, I I think Dalvin Cook's the best running back because, A, he's a three-down back. Leonard Fournette's only a two-down back, and, he, you know, he's had injury issues. But uh, that'll be uh, coming up uh, next Thursday night. Of course, the schedule just uh, came out tonight, uh, so everyone is going there and looking at it. Also, uh, one other thing to mention, we got asked about the why doesn't the UFC promote the purity of martial arts and Demetrius Johnson? How would Sam approach it? I, I did like, I thought the UFC did a better job promoting Demetrius Johnson, um, you know, for the upcoming, the, his last fight, but obviously the ratings just didn't do well. And uh, I, I love watching DJ fight. But the average human being does not enjoy watching small human beings nope. fight. Uh, so, uh, you know, what, let's in on this, uh, your, your final fix, uh, fight fixing uh, story. S- so this was a story that I've told before in written form. I don't know if I've told it on the air. I wish Adam Geller was still here because this is the kind of story that he, that he would love. But Joe Kelly and I, you know, we go way back. We've done a lot of shows together. We started working for M1 Global. That was our first show together. That was actually the first trip, first time I'd ever met Joe. So M1 Global or it was actually the M1 Challenge at the time. It was a team-based concept, but it was an international team concept. It was like the IFL, except it was America versus Russia and you know France versus England. It was you know country versus country. So we were over there to do some tapings in Bulgaria of all places, and this is where a potential fight-fix situation occurred, and we were pretty close to it. We've got to witness it for the most part. One of the team members of Team USA was a gentleman by the name of Lloyd Marshbanks, one of the, the most interesting guys that I have ever worked with in MMA. His nickname is Cadillac because even though he was a high school All-American wrestler, he eventually became a street fighter, a backyard fighter, similar to what Kimbo Slice used to do. And he got the nickname Cadillac because I guess in Southern California, they would have barbecues and at these barbecues, you know, they would get the toughest guy in the neighborhood. And for the entertainment at the barbecue, they'd bring in a guy from another neighborhood, uh, a guy like Lloyd, and they would have him fight the toughest guy in the neighborhood. And that was the night's entertainment. And quite often, Gambling took place. Betting took place on these fights. And Lloyd got the name Cadillac because he fought this one neighborhood tough guy, destroyed him, and the guy had put up a lot of money for the fight. And it turns out the guy who had his ass kicked didn't have any of that money. So, you know, for for Lloyd, for Cadillac Marshbanks, there really wasn't much that he could do. He couldn't get any physical retribution against this guy because he had beaten him so bad he would have had to waited waited about three to four weeks for him to be able to kick his ass again. I mean, if he continued to to pound this guy, this guy was going to probably end up in the hospital, and you know, it would have called you know attention to what had taken place, and no one was looking to do that. So Lloyd said, "Is that your Cadillac in the driveway?" You know, and, and the guy said, "Yeah, that, that that's my ride." He goes, "Well, we can make good on this." if you let it become my ride. So 
they gave him the keys and he, he drove off with, with, with a Cadillac and he became Lloyd Cadillac Marshbanks after that. And the legend of Lloyd Cadillac Marshbanks continued in Bulgaria of all places. So Team USA was getting ready. They were in their locker room. They had stuffed all of these fighters, each team, into their own tiny locker room. So five guys and a coach, six guys in a locker room with one bathroom. So Lloyd had to use the bathroom before his fight. And the fighters told him, man, do not go out on the concourse. You do not want to, you know, intermingle with the public right before you're about to to fight. You know, there's there's too much that could happen. And I'm telling you, Jason, this was Bulgaria. We were doing a show in Bulgaria of all places. And I think it was Bulgarian mob con, mobster convention. You know, there's a comic con for comic book fans. This was mobster con. All the Bulgarian gangsters filled up this arena. And I'm talking about these guys were huge. All of them seemed to be jacked. And they almost it seemed like almost all of them had long leather trench coats on. I mean, they were, you know, total strapped mob guys i mean you know to the point where i was kind of worried about my safety multiple times on this trip i'm like what have i gotten myself into so lloyd has to go to the bathroom he walks out to the public two strapped big bulgarian dudes walk up to him and they start chatting up they make small talk and they're kind of joking with them because they knew they knew who he was they knew he was american because you know lloyd cadillac marshbanks stands out in a place like bulgaria <laughs> so they said hey you're fighting our our friend so-and-so tonight and lloyd said oh yeah yeah i guess i am that's 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 the guy and according to lloyd one of the the gentlemen pulls open his leather trench coat and is brandishing a a gun and says in his broken English, you know, Bulgarian accent, we think it's best if you lose tonight. So it was basically an overt threat made against Lloyd Marshbanks, basically telling him that, it, you know, lose this fight or we're going to we're going to kill you. So Lloyd was a guy who was from, a, you know, I, I believe originally a bad neighborhood in Chicago. He's not a guy that was, you know, unfamiliar with, you know, tough situations but he was freaked out and, and joe and i were running the show basically because jerry millen um who normally oversaw you know the production and all the aspects of the 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 show was not on this trip so you know joe and i get word that lloyd isn't gonna fight you know something happened we didn't know exactly what it was kind of confusing how it was conveyed to us but we were told that lloyd wasn't gonna fight and we kind of panicked because the way that the taping is set up, the way each episode was set up, it's a best of five show. And if you only have four fights, it, you can't really present it as a best of five contest at that point. It kind of kind of kills the the uh, the concept and all the money that you've put forth in, in, in putting this show together and and, you know, getting the fighters there from all over the world. You know, that money almost becomes wasted so we go back and we start talking to lloyd and lloyd's freaked out man he, he tells us what ha what's what happened he's ready to you know he's packing his bag he's ready to run out of there so we go to vadim finkelstein and we explain the situation to him and you know people can say what they want about vadim but a lot of fighters that were around him they basically considered him to be kind of a, a hardcore guy you know um he had some interesting connections in in in, in the world and you know w was a uh, a guy that had resources so you know so vadim comes in with a couple of big strapped bodyguards and personally guarantees lloyd's safety says you know nothing's gonna happen 
under my watch. You're going to be fine. You know, these guys, we don't even know if they're serious. They could have been just trying to scare you. You know, it, it, it's, we're going to take care of it. You're going to be fine. So, you know, Lloyd's fight comes up. He, I believe he's the last fight of the evening um, against the Bulgarian fighter. And he's still rattled, though, because he, you know, there's a catwalk in the entranceway. And they were setting off pyro for the, the announcements of, of a lot of the fighters. And the, the ring announcer hasn't even announced Lloyd's name. And Lloyd is running out on the catwalk. And he's in the ring, and then his name's announced, and the pyro goes off, and he's already in the ring. So, you know, he's freaked out. He, he doesn't – the timing's off for his, his uh, entrance, and he's fighting a, a jacked Bulgarian guy. And Lloyd's about 5'11", but he fights heavyweight. He's a heavy dude, uh, but he, he was – you know, he, he was uh, a pretty slick wrestler, and he had some really interesting slick submissions. So I would say about 30, 45 seconds into the fight, this Bulgarian guy, he was jacked, but he was completely green. Had no idea what he was doing when it came to MMA. Ends up on his back, and Lloyd's in a standing position and has you know, control of his ankles. And you know, it was obvious at that point, knowing Lloyd's background in submissions, he had an obvious heel hook there. I mean, he just all he had to do was sink down and, and, and apply some pressure, and the fight was over. And, you know... He has it and he knows it and he starts looking around, you know, and we're like freaking out. We're like, what is he doing? You know, he's got the, you know, submit the guy, win the fight. And, you know, the guy wasn't able to get out. So Lloyd finally, after much hesitation, drops down, sinks in the, the hook. The guy taps, fights over. Before Lloyd can even be announced as the winner, you know, there was no post-fight ceremonies. Lloyd rolls out of the ring, runs back to the locker room, doesn't even go through the catwalk, just goes through a uh, egress and gets back into the locker room. He had had someone go back to his room because our hotel was right near the uh, arena, was within walking distance. Somebody went back, got all of his stuff. His stuff was waiting for him. They threw his gear into a back of a car, and you know he was driven off. And it was funny because all of Team USA, we were scheduled to leave Bulgaria a day after everyone else. I think if this show was on a Friday, all the Dutch and Russian uh, representatives for the organization, they were flown out Saturday. All the Americans had to stay an extra day in beautiful Bulgaria uh, because the the – because M1, they saved money on our – it was cheaper for them to send us out on a Sunday as opposed to a Saturday. So all of us, we we stayed back and we hung back, and, and Lloyd was scheduled to fly back with us on a Sunday. But they got him out of there in the car, flew him back, and it was one of the wildest things that I had ever seen. And, you know, we, we didn't know what happened to Lloyd because we didn't really have cell phone uh, communications back with the U.S. Bulgaria is a pretty unique uh, country. Uh, technologically, it's a little behind some other nations. So we couldn't even get a cell phone signal. We couldn't really get internet. So we had no idea what had happened to Lloyd. They assured us that he was okay, but it wasn't until we got back into the States on Monday. You know, a lot of us texted him and called him. He told us everything worked out, but it was, uh, it was an interesting situation because that was definitely a time where I witnessed the outcome of a fight almost being influenced by an outside entity where a fight was thrown. And, that kind of stuff, I guess it can happen because I saw it. Crazy, crazy, crazy story to uh, end the podcast. Uh, Sam, I appreciate you coming on. It was great to uh, to talk MMA with you again, man. Good. I hope everyone enjoyed my story time. <laughs> and, of course, uh, the MMA Insiders podcast, exclusively available on RadioInfluence.com, also available iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and now on Google 
play. Be sure to uh, check out the uh, MMA Report preview podcast that's coming out on Friday of this week as myself and Daniel Gavon are going to preview Bellator 178, also UFC Fight Night 108, of course, taking place on Saturday night in Nashville. Also, be sure to check out my sponsor, Fight TV. Be sure to download the Fight app, fight.tv forward slash radio influence forward slash. Once again, that's fight, F-I-T-E dot TV forward slash radio influence forward slash. Follow Jason Floyd and Sam Kaplan on Twitter. Find them at Jason underscore Floyd and at Sam Kaplan MMA. This is the MMA Insiders Podcast on Radio Influence. This is a fabulous sports babe. Quick fix on Radio Influence. Rick Saratella is here. He has to talk to us about the draft, the draft, the draft. Lord knows the babe loves the draft. You've got Dalvin right. Cook and you've got Christian McCaffrey. And I'm like, I don't buy any of them. Dalvin Cook is good. It's just that he's got the labor on both sides over here. And Christian right. McCaffrey, I don't think he's ever carried it 35 times. I'm not finding interest in either one of those guys. Well, you know, McCaffrey, I got to say, I was a guy that wasn't too high on McCaffrey. He's kind of won me over a little bit. I, I, I call him Danny Woodhead on steroids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, I mean, this guy's hands at the combine, God, I mean, they say they say he has one of the best hands in the entire draft, including the wide receivers. And I think because the wide-open way of the NFL, the passing attack, I think the value that he brings, you know, like the Saints, the way they used to use Darren Sproles, that could be Christian McCaffrey. Um, you know, some people have him going now in the top 10 as high as number eight to the Panthers. Um, and, you know, some people like him number 20 to the Broncos. The Fabulous Sports Babe can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and RadioInfluence.com.